House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm sitting at the controls, Al Warren. Thought I'd hear some cheering. Um, now, yes. on the line, instead of he can't, he can't, he has no internet because he's you know Boston, <laughs> America. They don't know how. Horrible. Horrible. Uh, David North Martino. Ooh. Hey, Al. Good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. You you haven't been on a couple <laughs> of shows. You're busy. I know. Too busy for. I'm us. back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. <laughs> Two shots down and one to go. That's right. I'm all vaccinated, so rid of, yeah, yeah. rid of the rock. Yeah, well, I've got two shots down, too, and the third oh, jab is right. always the funnest. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we were talking about that last night. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> Get, I'm waiting for that third jab. Yeah. Well, now today we've got a writer, um, which um, he's a Canadian writer. He's from Toronto. He's on... Zoom now, so we'll say hi. Hi, Miles Cameron. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, in fact, tomorrow I'll get my second shot. Just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, hopefully you don't get sick. Um, you know, any any mm. bad reflex. I got. I always get a bad little jolt the day after, it seems like. I definitely lost a day when I got my first AstraZeneca. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of... Uh, so we'll see. Hopefully, you know, maybe uh, t- tomorrow's show may not be on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, well, so Miles, first time on the show. Um, let's talk a little bit about you. Now, you've written a lot of books. Um, how, someone not, that's well, not necessarily just, a bad thing. No, but <laughs> but no. I'm looking at how many <laughs> you've written, and I know that it takes a lot of work. Um, but what? What got you into it? Because this isn't your first career. So how did how did Miles get into ca- into um, writing? So uh, that's a that's a heck of a good question, and I will I will try and keep it short. Um, I was in the Navy uh, for a while, the United States Navy. I'm originally American, and um, I had always enjoyed writing. And my dad and I used to go camping all the time. That was our sort of shared passion, uh, wilderness camping. And we were in the Adirondacks, I could tell you where. And I said, uh, I have a great idea for a novel. And I laid it out for him. And what dad always said when I had a great idea for him to write a novel was, you should write that. Uh, and he, he was regular as clockwork. And in this strange instance, he thought the idea was so good that he said, we should write that. And so we did. Uh, it was about father and son spies, and um, uh, the spies were actually the bad guys. And so we each chose a part, and we wrote it, and that was super fun. And then we wrote eight more spy novels together, uh, and that was the foundation of my writing career. And, and I have to tell you, it was a hilarious foundation because I was at the time an intelligence officer, and every word I wrote had to be reviewed by a security officer. Uh, since you're a writer, you know that adding to the editor, copy editor, page-proof process, a security officer who can take anything out of the book that she wants, in this case it was a she, um, is not hilarious to your publisher. No. Uh, that, that adds more stress and headache, um, for sure. That's, that's, but but um, if, So what gave you the confidence? Was it just your father that gave you the confidence to actually feel comfortable publishing? Uh. So hmm, I feel like there's a lot of different threads to the string to my bow. Uh, I went to a high school that really pushed essay writing and um, and really creative writing, and they had us on it all the time. Uh, Jesuits, they're big on writing. And, of course, my dad was a writer. And, you know, one of the things, and I say this to young writers who might be listening having your dad be a writer at least tells you that this is a doable thing as opposed to some alien, you know, who sits on a throne somewhere writing fantasy or science fiction. Uh, it's very real to you. If your dad sits right there in front of you and produces books, that, that seems very real. So I knew it was possible. 
Um, and my first job in the military, uh, pardon me, my second job in the military was producing what was basically a newspaper on terrorism. I know that sounds odd. Just just run with me here. Um, and there were about 50 of us and we had to produce every day and nobody ever mentioned the words writer's block. We had, you know, an assigned set of articles and it was, I think, a lot like journalism. Um, and no one ever said, uh, oh, it's OK if you don't get your article in. And that was a very useful lesson for, for me about writing and about production uh, and also about not being thin skinned about somebody else taking my beautiful prose and rewriting it all from top to bottom. <laughs> well, that's, 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 okay, so now when we talk about the type of writing you do, so you, you were talking about detective kind of spy or Now, you, the, the book you're promoting today, the newest book, Artifact Space, now these are not that. These are what you'd call sci-fi fantasy sort of, I believe. This is definitely a science fiction novel. Uh, in fact, I would go as far as to say it was classic space opera. But there is definitely an espionage element to it. Uh, it's not the main espionage. And I would also say that in a meta plot way that will go over the three book series, it's a murder mystery. Uh, it's a, a, a sort of gigantic war crime murder mystery of something that happened a long, long time ago. But my, my theme, if I may be so bold, is that the past is always with us. And listen, for any Canadian listener who's been alive the last four weeks and paying attention to residential schools, uh, to me, this is the endless lesson of history, and I'm a big history nerd. The endless lesson of history is that history is always with us. You can never make it go away. Um, and, uh, and that is sort of the theme of the book. So something happened 100,000 years ago that is going to affect the whole human race. Um, and that is, that is sort of my, my meta theme if that's even a word. Mm. Well, and it sort of brings up, the, and what you're talking about, I would imagine, is you're kind of um, referring to the, the 215 um, indigenous children that were, that were buried in a Catholic school. Yes. Yeah, that was just recently found. So, um, so even if we, don't, if we think it's hidden, uh, eventually it all comes out sometime. And that is exactly what I mean. Eventually, it all comes out. It's it's, it's pretty an, an interesting thought. Um, how does that come to your mind, but how do you get back a thousand years and kind of figure out what you want the people then, the world then, to go through? where it comes up now like so where does where does this idea come from for you how did this book come to you uh again i i actually have a t-shirt that says no short answers i'll do my best with this. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's uh, we're here to we're here to get to know you so no the, problem so the way this book came to me is like a uh again multiple strands uh, I'll say that when I worked for Naval Criminal Investigative Service, uh, I did some war crimes investigation, and that definitely planted in me the the meta plot. Um, and, you know, I, I am a big history nerd. I read history constantly. And after a while, um, one does sort of begin to feel that there are no good guys in history. Um, uh, and one begins to also, I feel see how everything is everything, how things assemble, how the, you know, the history of the European fur trade in Eastern Europe is directly related to the European slave trade in Eastern Europe and then dumps all its garbage into the Americas with American colonialism and stuff like that. Like, like everything is everything and everything connects to everything else. So that's like one strand. But um, I, I rather enjoy telling the story, and I'll try and be brief. Um, with Artifact Space, I was reading a book on Venetian trade in the 15th century and on the great galleys that Venice sent all over their world, not all over what we now consider the world, but from Alexandria, Egypt, to Bruges and Ghent and London and Barcelona and, you know, a all over the Mediterranean and all up the Atlantic coast and down uh, into Algeria. 
And those galleys held together uh, uh, were sort of the life's blood, the arterial blood of a giant international trade system, which vanished in the 16th century. But I was just reading about this one time. And um, I thought I was doing that reading for a, a historical novel because I also write historical novels. And then um, another strand in this little story is that um, some years ago, I was at Galan's Fest, which is an English book festival. Um, and one of my heroes as an author, a, a gentleman named Alistair Reynolds, was there. And I had never met him, so I just plunked down next to him and started to talk. And he was amazed that I had served on aircraft carriers, and he made the chance observation that aircraft carriers were the closest thing he could think of to giant spaceships. So just roll with that for a moment. Um, and then uh, the last and perhaps most important thing is um, an old ballet instructor of mine likes to say that she believes that art makes art. And she believes that some of her best art has come out of looking at other people's art. And I've, I've definitely had this experience. But on this one glorious occasion, and I say it's glorious because it gave me artifact space, um, this is just before COVID. My family and I went to see uh, the movie Little Women. And I don't know what you thought of that movie, but I loved it. And I can tell you to the scene where the moment was that artifact space was born. Uh, Amy is uh, explaining to her possible beau that now that she's discovered that she's not a great artist, all that is left to her is to marry someone rich and have babies. And that's just the awful way the world works. And in like a five count, I had the whole of artifact space in my head. Um, and if you want to call it Amy goes to space, that's not unfair. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that's the process by which artifact space came into existence. So Warheim's tribunals, uh, Alistair Reynolds, and um, uh, Little Women. So it sounds like a comedy. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, and that that brings me to what I my next point is when you are a history buff and you're dealing with this and and how there's the constant. Um, repeating of of bad or evil sort of events happening in history, like what humans do to each other has been terrible through time, and sometimes we discover it after the fact, like later, many generations, and sometimes it happens at the time. But when you're dealing with that as the center of your subject, uh, does does that bother you at all? Does that make your does that affect you? I mean, when you go through something like that. Absolutely. Um, I, I do like to say that not everything in history is bad or or there, you know, we know there is joy in life. Um, and I do like to remind myself and others of that from time to time. But, yeah, I can be very affected by it. And, um, you know, one of the areas I most enjoy writing about uh, late medieval, early Renaissance Italy, um, you know, people go, oh, the Renaissance. And I think. Yeah, actually, the Renaissance was a terrible time to be a woman and not much of a good time to be poor. But, you know, as usual, for the top quarter of one percent, it was fantastic. Um, uh, I could be really cynical that way. But at the same time, uh, uh, there is a lot more to history than just the bad parts. But there's plenty of bad. I, I don't deny it. Um, there, but there's there's also more, and people dance, and people make excellent food, and I'm I'm a big fan of historical food and the origins of modern food. So sometimes I just follow up on food or how costume evolves or um, why most women don't wear front opening gowns, but some do, or you know all these things are interesting and show you how people really lived. And um, and what people will put up with and how they manage to find happiness amid all that. And I don't mean to be Pollyanna, uh, but I, I would say that one of the one of the constants of history is that um, even the people building the pyramids probably managed to have a good time from time to time. Now, having um, written a lot of historical fiction and uh, uh, fantasy, what um, made you want to uh, make this novel uh, science fiction and, and go with a science fiction story and, and go in that direction? 
Uh, well, Dave, uh, first of all, I'm, I've always been a big science fiction reader. Mm. And um, I think it, it's hard for me to explore the process because, like I say, this book hit me like a ton of bricks. The whole the inspiration mm. was so fast. But I'm going to guess that what my subconscious did, I know that's a little too Freudian, was to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, these 15th century Venetians are interesting, but how would, how will humanity keep it together and remain in touch with each other when we have 20 or 30 star systems and it takes time to travel? Mm. Um, and I, I actually think that when you look at how divided we can be, even when we have instantaneous communication via the Internet, even when we live in the same countries, um, just imagine the speed with which we will become different cultures when we live on different planets, which take time to travel between. And by the way, I kind of take for granted that this is going to happen, which may be very foolish of me. Um, but it, it suddenly made everything sort of, like really interesting and I thought how how will it be and how will people communicate and what what basis will they have for communication well trade trade is a thing that people seem to excel at you know we always say human beings excel at war when we're being cynical but we do also excel at trade and um and I I think I'm guessing because like I say it's like I woke from a dream and there was my book but uh I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that well, Those are good points. Well, how how long does it take you? So when you're sitting in the theater and, and something comes to you, the, the book, so to speak, is planted into you, um, how long does it, get, uh, does it take for you to get this down on paper and get it into the publisher? Well, you can't tell anyone I said this, except okay. that I'm pretty sure we're on radio. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but it, 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 it took me 46 days. Um, and that included, I think, wow. so uh, the next day we were somewhere and I didn't have a computer. So I took a pad from a Greek trip, a little one of those moleskin notebooks um, out of that all of us carry and never use, or at least that's how I view them. I, I took it out of my backpack and wrote longhand a ton of notes so that I wouldn't forget it because I'm not 35 anymore. Um, and then when I got home, I started writing see the thing that hadn't come into my head fully formed uh i hope this isn't boring is exactly the sort of the background like what what fantasy writers call the world building that that wasn't there the story was there both the big arcs and the character and the character arc but i i sort of didn't know like how do spaceships work and where are these planets and things like that i didn't know so uh, there followed what I will call a research phase, although if my father were here, he would say that's not research, that's reading. Um, and uh, then when I was done with that phase, I just started writing. And from the start day to the end was 46 work days. You must be old if you can write on paper. <laughs> <laughs> there were dinosaurs who attended my school. Yeah, I was going to say, nobody knows how to do that anymore. But it took you a long time, 46 days, boy. You, you. I, I'm not as fast as Sebastian, it's true. Yeah, you're just like taking your time. Um, but, and I want to specify, this doesn't, you know, I've written 43 published books. Uh, this is not my normal life. My normal life is uh, more like a six-month period. Um, I mean, that's including research, but... Uh, and that's six months of solid work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you when you brought up that point, how how um, how difficult it is for the world and people in the world to get along with each other um, when we have instant communication and when we you know have such a tight um, hold with each other, like we know what's going on almost instantly. So with that in mind. How did you know how to make your worlds get along, and what what they as in like what they would and wouldn't? And I mean this in you know things like with the pandemic here, um, there was a lot of differences that happened, you know, with the masks and no masks, and a lot of things going on. Um, 
which were not seeable. Like you could not foresee it necessarily, a lot of things that, that happened in real life. So how is it that you can choose or how do you decide what it is that people will get along with and will not get along with? Uh, I have a ter terrible cop-out for this question. I use history. <laughs> um, uh, I really do. I use history because I kind of go with what I've observed in history. And um, uh, that doesn't mean I base it on history. But I uh, imagine that um, if I were a computer programmer, my sandbox would be history. I go like, hey, did this ever work for anyone? Um, so my my sort of human government, except it keeps claiming it's not a government, which I think will be super popular in the future, uh, is roughly based on the government of Venice in the in the Middle Ages. And, you know, Venice was a republic, uh, not a kingdom, not a dukedom. It was a republic. And it's a republic that lasted a thousand years. Uh, might have lasted longer under slightly different historical uh, conditions and pushed more power down to middle class people than anything. They, everybody who visited commented like, but wow, people who who are of no importance, nonetheless participate in government, say aristocratic Englishmen, oh, people of no importance. That would be people like me. Um, and <laughs> that that doesn't mean that they didn't have patricians and oligarchs. Uh, they just had found a way to get participation all the way down to what the English of the 19th century liked to call the lowest classes. Um, and, uh, and I thought that was cool. And I, and, you know, it was a trade empire and I thought I'll make use of that. Um, uh, and then, you know, when you get into direct items like mask wearing, um, yeah. And it was, I wrote most of this during a pandemic and I won't pretend that didn't in influence some of the writing, um, there are quote unquote bad guys, uh, and I enjoyed having the bad guys be a mix of actual conspirators and communications errors so that, um, one of the power blocks that appears bad, I don't want to give too much away. Uh, one eventually finds out just has its own internal factions and, didn't understand what was going on because it's all happening light years away and they're reacting to the news as it comes in. Um, Cause that's a real thing, you know, and if you just look at how world war one happened, a lot of it was about reaction times and the manipulation of reaction times and maneuvering and so on. And I thought I'd make use of that. Um, and as for cultures, I had a real good time positing where culture would be in 600 years. Uh, I think in some ways that was one of my favorite parts of, of doing science fiction was to say, so I, I have a, uh, because, sorry, um, our notions of what is a successful society and what is not a successful society. I had just finished Peter Heather's excellent book called Barbarians, which sort of turned on its head my thoughts about the end of the Roman Empire. And I thought, right, if you were sitting around in 350 AD looking at the almost inconceivably powerful Roman Empire, and somebody said, see these Gallic and German chieftains? In 500 years, they'll be running an empire and Rome will be in ruins. You would say, eh, that seems very unlikely. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I enjoyed making um, uh, Italy the center of future uh, sort of Euro-ish culture, not France or England. And I enjoyed the... Um, uh, Bemba language, uh, sorry, I spent some time in Africa, um, Pan-African Union. Uh, it's not actually called the Pan-African Union because it has a Bemba name um, because uh, it turns out that the African industrial complex sort of won Earth in the long run. Um, and I enjoy doing things like that because I, I think that we, we have become very deterministic in science fiction and we go like, well, Americans are big now, so they'll be big. 500 years from now, and I'm, I'm not positive that's what history tells us happens. Oh, so, no. No, we've um, barely got a dozen years. Uh, well, I, you know, <laughs> that, that, would also, that would also pain me. But, um, yeah, so uh, I, I, I very much enjoyed doing that and then sort of playing on cultural differences as history tells me um, and, uh, and trying not to caricature anyone while playing on cultural differences. And I think that given today's sensibilities, this has become a new thing and it just requires more respect and more research. As you say, yes, one of my 
you know, future empires is roughly based on China. Well, China goes through phases and there's a lot of phases and there's a lot to know about China. So you have to avoid stereotype. And anyway, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, that must make it really difficult. That must be a, um, uh, geez, that must be a real challenge, especially when you have characters that you're trying to develop and interact with each other. Because, because it's, it's human to be, um, I don't know, how do you say it? Um, just you know, to not like or to not trust another race or another, uh, it could be a male, female, it could be gay, straight, it could be all sorts of things. There's still a lot of human um, bias and, and, and hate, you might say. So that must be really difficult to try and be neutral with everything not and not have any interaction in that way, or am I wrong? Uh, I think you're right. And I'm going to go on a weird tangent and say, I really am an old-fashioned writer, so old-fashioned that I've read Aristotle. And I believe in Aristotle's <laughs> principles of tragedy. So I actually think it's my duty to morally inform. Um, and that means that I, I may have a character display racism, but I'm not going to approve. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going to try and, um, uh, you know, convey a very different message. And, I actually think that's important for authors to do without, if you'll pardon me, being banal about it. Um, so there are definitely characters, even even friendly characters, uh, friendly to the protagonist, who give off what I'll call culturalism, because I'm trying to indicate that, uh, you know, that racism maybe is a very different thing 500 years from now. Um, uh, I kind of try to suggest that sort of everyone is brown. And or or that it doesn't matter so much. And I would like to point out that, for instance, as far as we know, the Byzantine and late Roman empires were pretty race blind. Uh, so it does happen. It comes and goes. Race is a thing. It's a construct, as some people say. Uh, also a dangerous thing to fully believe. But anyway, that's not what we're on the show for. So, yeah, uh, try to represent points of view I don't agree with. But I do believe it's my job to, to some extent, moralize. So the main character is free of those things and tries to be unbiased in her assessments of others. And then, uh, you know, I really enjoy, I really like other cultures. I, uh, I've been all over. I spent a long time in the Middle East. I spent a long time in Africa. And, um, and I really enjoyed, I enjoyed living in Mombasa. I enjoyed, you know, living in Dubai. And I, I try and get that across, too, because my feeling entering Dubai is not a, uh, a revulsion at alienness. It's more the opposite. It's like, whoa, this is going to be completely different. That is so great. Um, and yeah. and yeah. I think one of the literally greatest moments of my life was my aircraft carrier pulling into Dubai during the Gulf War. And we were coming in very slowly because the skipper did not want to leave a big wake because of the dows that were sailing right past our hull, headed into the to the sort of open air market on the docks. And there was a smell and a look to the, I, I felt like I was enter, entering the thousand and one nights. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> but I think that's great. I think that's sort of um, the best way to approach something because, you know, you're different living in a different place. And the main characters in the book, um, it's quite often said that fiction writers, um, something of yourself is in every character. Um, what is it that you put into your characters that belongs to you? Uh, well, this isn't going to be very nice, but uh, <laughs> Marka and Barrow has my sense of inadequacy um, and also my self-confidence. And I'm going to weirdly say that I know those two things don't apparently go together, but I think many honest people would say, oh, yes, I can do both of those acts. Um, so, uh, you know, she she is pretty rigorously aware of her own failings and then possibly overemphasizes her own failings. And that that would be me. Um, and then uh, she does this thing that I do and a lot of people that I have known do which is sort of like, yes, I'm nearly paralyzed with fear. So here we go. Let's do this. And, and I think that's much more interesting than the straight-up hero 
who knows no fear. And in fact, in my time in the Navy, uh, people who were called NAFID, which is a Navy term meaning no apparent fear of death, that was not a compliment. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, but when you, but, okay, so when you put yourself in a book like that, like parts of you that are kind of, you know, it's, it's vulnerable for you, um, does it does it bother you if people pick that out of a book you've written and say something negative toward it or not not so nice, maybe? As a writer, I would like to say that 43 books on, I am exactly as thin-skinned to criticism as I was on book one. <laughs> so um, <laughs> and that's that's probably should be numbered in my failings. But at the same time, uh, can I, do you mind if I reference a different book? I wrote, oh, a historical, yeah. I, I wrote a historical novel that was basically a, a fictionalized biography of Alexander the Great. And it's the hardest book I ever wrote, partially because it was very long, uh, and partially because I think Alexander was a terrible person. Um, and so I spent a lot of time referencing those parts of me that weren't very pretty to look at. And that was not entirely pleasant. I'm told it's a good book. Uh, but then when people critiqued my view of Alexander, I did feel kind of personally. I'd be like, are, are you kidding? Anyway, uh, so yes, when you put yourself in a character, and I'll also add, um, and maybe this is the product of being 43 books on, that there is less of me in Mark and Borrow than probably any book I've ever written. And that doesn't mean that I don't like her or respect her, but somehow a very good friend of mine said, oh, your early books, I could recognize every character. And that's because I often used my close friends as main characters. And I just steal them lock, stock and barrel and turn them into characters because they were the people I knew best. Um, whereas as I become more comfortable with character and observation of character, I guess I feel more comfortable in saying, oh, that's how that works. I can use that, but that doesn't necessarily have to be a person I know well. Um, so, and then there's neuroscience, which I think ruins everything. Uh, there's a very, very good book called The Master and His Emissary about, well, it's about a lot of things, but sort of about the clash between neuroscience and, and the former art of psychology. And one of the sort of crushing points that book made to me is that as a novelist, I probably believed things about the human mind that just weren't true, if that makes sense. Um, so as we study how dopamine works, we learn a, about the kind of person who experiences love at first sight. And not everyone does, right? Um, but it turns out that it is extremely unlikely that the person who experiences love at first sight would betray anyone because those two things don't go together with the dopamine. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah, hmm. no. Anyway, it's all about, uh, like, I've just learned different things about writing character, and I guess I use me as a crutch less. <laughs> um, uh, and a long time ago a really good editor said to me I hope not about my books she claimed she was referencing an, another author she said she never liked it when she found that she was reading a manuscript that was just a wish fulfillment and that has really stuck with me um, you know there are a few things that all authors kind of say to each other one is you know kill your darlings you know little quips like that so my, my quip would be don't write wish fulfillment. And that has embedded in it, don't make it all about you. Mm. Well, I was also thinking, too, uh, you're talking about historical fiction, and um, you can also kind of pair that up with fantasy. And I know that you do in reenactments. And I was wondering if that helps you to immerse yourself into that time period when you're writing or does the realism of that, is that a hindrance to writing the, the drama of the, of the story? Dave, I looked everywhere for a starship that I could spend a few weeks on uh, as a reenactor, and <laughs> yeah. I could not find one. Um, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, seriously, though, um, yeah, reenacting helps me enormously, and I could spend every minute you have telling you why I think reenacting is great. If I was an actor, I'd be a method actor. Um, mm. Uh, the, the gentleman who played Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings movie apparently spent three weeks wearing his costume and fly fishing in New Zealand, <laughs> uh, both of which sound fine to me. I wear costumes and I like fly fishing. 
Um, but, uh, and when I read that, I went like, ah, seriously, a kindred spirit. Um, and he said one of the things mm. was he wanted to learn how to wear a sword. And, you know, I probably wear swords more often than most people in the 21st century. And it is a thing. And once you get good at wearing a sword, it isn't mm. as clumsy and annoying as it is in the beginning. And I, you know, anyway, uh, I, I'm a storyteller and I was about to launch into a story. I'll spare you. But oh, no. uh, I get a ton out of reenacting, but it's not necessarily what the reader might think. For instance, I teach historical martial arts, but actually I would not say that reenacting informs fight scenes as much as it informs my idea of what a military camp is like in 1380 or what uh -huh. food tastes like or how hard it is to start a fire with flint and steel in the rain, mm. or um, how under certain circumstances you might use your sword as a roasting spit, or, you know, you just, <laughs> you, or how fast medieval shoes become sodden, and yet how great, I, I walked the Camino in Spain in medieval clothes, and um Every single day, it was proven to me how much better the medieval clothes were than what the pilgrims around me were wearing uh, in modern clothes. Hmm. And there were there was wow. eight of us walking together. And it, amongst other things, we could just fix our shoes because medieval European shoes are almost exactly like First Nations moccasins. They're just a little wow. different because they have metal buckles. But otherwise, they're very much like First Nations moccasins. And so we could just fix ours when they wore out. We could just cut a piece of leather and sew it on. And um, we were watching people lose the soles off their $600 hiking boots and so on and going like, yeah. Wow. Over a, over <laughs> 40 days of walking, you need to be able to repair your kit um, and other things. Mm. Um, and, and just living in the kit. And I, I'm, I'm also passionately passionate about uh, late archaic and classical Greece. And you just learn things that you cannot know without doing them. And the most obvious one is that almost any costume history written about about ancient Greece asks a lot of hard questions about what shoulder pins are for in women's clothes. But as soon as you do a reenactment with a breastfeeding mother, you go, ah, oh, oh, that's why all young women have shoulder pins. Yep. Because wow. you can drop one shoulder and breastfeed your child. Uh, not something that would normally occur to a male costume historian mm. in the late 19th century. Right. And I, I've got a million of these, Absolutely. but there's a ton of stuff that you learn by doing. And it is it is rarely about war. It's about custom and culture. Yeah. And, I, and it's kind of like going to Dubai or Mombasa, too. Right. I, I mean, and uh, this is sort of what I want to stress about travel and alienness. Um, the, the past is another country and reenacting is the closest you can come to visiting. it. Oh. I, I always have my talk so I can whip it off real quick, but, <laughs> but that's uh, not to breastfeed. But anyway, um, when, you, when you write a book or when you have these books done, you've got no 43 now, I guess you say, um, is there a subtext? Is there some underlying theme you want people to get or, or understand besides the, 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 the story itself? Um, at a really straightforward but banal level, I would say all my books are saying we can all get along. So it's 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 about uh, it's really about coming together, not apart. Yeah, I you know I have a a long series that has like its own separate fan base, almost separate from everything else I've ever written. Uh, about an English knight in the Middle Ages, and most of his time is spent in Greece and Italy, not in England. Um, and uh, the point, he's, he's based on a real person and some real events, but the point I'm trying to make is that um, late 14th century Europe was actually a curiously international place, uh, and that um, contrary to the sort of right-wing mythological history, the division, the perceived division between Islam and Christianity of the later Middle Ages was uh, way more perceived than real. 
There's a fabulous nonfiction book called Agents of Empire, which won all sorts of prizes in the UK. Um, nonfiction. Uh, and it, it's brilliant. It's actually about the 16th century, but it follows a bunch of Albanian families who are literally sending one son to the Knights of St. John and another son to serve the Pasha. Um, kind of like Highland clans sent one son to, to serve the King of England and another to serve the young pretender. Like, um, and this is a way you get along when you live in the border. But there were lots of people who got along. Venice traded with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire traded with Venice and Persia and all the way to China. A lot of things were more international than we remember because historiography tells us that it was 19th century nationalism that decided we should all be super careful about staying in our boxes, in my humble opinion. Well, that's interesting. Um, well, um do you, I hope that wasn't a conversation killer. No, no, I'm just, um, what can I say? No, uh, website, where do people find Miles Cameron? Where are they, where's the best place to go if they want to find out more about you and your books? Yeah, I do have a website, uh, christiancameronauthor.com. Um, pretty, pretty memorable. Uh, all, all one word, as, as they say. Uh, and I have a fairly robust presence on Twitter because I, apparently like arguing with people um actually mostly because i like putting out videos about how weapons and armor in the middle ages and uh and even the ancient world actually worked um and uh by the way my my twitter is uh phokion one that's p-h-o-k-i-o-n one number one and i have a piece on twitter and on youtube called writing fighting which uh is literally meant as a public service just so that people Oh, oh, that's how chainmail works. And oh, how nice. It takes four minutes to get your arm harnesses on. Stuff like that. <laughs> well, they're important things. We need to know. Um, <laughs> hey, so did, how, did, um, how did COVID go for you? Did it sort of interfere with your writing and, and how you do things, your process? What a great question. I, I actually think writers should get together worldwide and like talk their way through what COVID was like. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I feel like I had two COVIDs. Uh, I had the first COVID where I had no interruptions and I wrote four books in a row. Bang, 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 bang. One of them was Artifact Space. Um, and I'm quite pleased with all of them, which sounds very self-serving of me, but I'm not always pleased when I finish a book. But I had time and space and no interruption because we were locked down in Toronto. Um, and then second COVID was very different. It's like I was tired of COVID. And I've heard this from a number of other people. I don't think this is a rare experience. Um, and what some people have called COVID depression sort of settled in. And I found I was not as motivated to get to work. And I had just basically done two years work in a year. Um, so, you know, there was no editor baying for my blood. There was no deadline that I needed to race to meet. I was literally writing a 2023 contract. That's part of it. But part of it was I just didn't feel particularly motivated. And, um, you know, uh, uh, without, without going into all of today's jargon, I am a person of privilege. And this event really brought home the level of privilege. Like I have a house and it has a backyard. And it has a garage, and the garage-backyard combo allowed me to have a modest but real social life through all of COVID, you know, when we were allowed to have three people or five people in the backyard or whatever. And I didn't live in a tiny apartment or in a condo. Um, and uh, because I did some volunteer work, I came to realize that there were a lot of people not as privileged as me and just not privileged for space, Right. So um, a young couple living in the heart of downtown, kind of living the dream, but now their 1,200-square-foot condo is also both of their offices, and they also have a two-year-old. And you can see mm -hmm. how, in, how, how quickly, you know, like, and a lot of the condos, it turns out, don't actually have a good office space. So you have uh, a young person sitting on her bed, to have that be her office while her partner is sitting at the tiny dining room table and they're trying to switch off the child care while doing 18 Zoom meetings. Um, surely you've had this kind of experience. And that kind of thing 
was really hard on people. And that's without even getting close to poverty, lack of air conditioning. Anyway, a bunch of other stuff that I also saw. So I definitely felt privileged, but that didn't keep me from getting really tired of COVID. Yeah, yeah. You, you, but did you find it changed the tone of your writing? Do you think that um, with so much negativity and so much stress, we'll say, um, going on around, do you think it kind of works its way into how you write? I think I didn't let it. I think I was definitely aware that that was out there waiting to. So, uh, Alan, early on in COVID, like a year ago, about a year ago, um, a group of historical fiction writers got together, formed an organization called Authors Without Borders and started writing fiction for free. Uh, and that included these are mostly English writers, so I'm not sure you'd know them, but like Ben Cain is a big name in historical fiction and uh, Giles Christian is a big name in historical fiction. And we, I think 11 of us in the end, we put out a fair amount of free fiction and we agreed in a couple of Zoom calls right at the beginning that our job, very Aristotelian, was to uplift, not not downlift. Um and, and that set the tone I felt for the rest of, of my writing year in 2020. Like, it's my job to write. I, I don't want to sound crappy or banal, but like, happy is going to be better than sad in this, in this time. Yeah, certainly. Um, where to next? What's, what's coming up after Artifact comes out and you're uh, a big star and everybody's getting your autograph? What, what do you do next? You know, I, I, I sense I sense the irony in your tone, and yet uh, I, have, I, I have never ever had this much social media attention, and I really don't know what to do with it. I can't I, I, I can't already can't keep up with email, and that is not my usual role as a solitary author living in a house in Toronto. Um, uh, I'm writing uh, Deep Black, which is the sequel to Artifact Space, and that's. Um, not that one was not given me by the gods of writing. So that is a day by day actual writing thing. And um, uh, I started a novel four years ago under, let's just say, curious circumstances. I thought that a publisher had bought it and then later they didn't want the idea. So I just dropped it at about page 200. And now I've decided to finish it um, sort of for fun, because as I said before, I've already written through my 2021 and really my 2022 contracts and I have further stuff under contract, but you, you, you know, as well as I do, no editor wants to see anything that early. So, no. um, uh, but my problem is I love to write. I can't just stop writing. So I'm going to work on some side projects for a while. Um, and that's fun. I mean, I, I enjoy the side projects. Last thing I'll say on that is uh, the other thing I love beyond all things besides reenacting is travel. And uh, there hasn't been a lot of that in COVID. And travel to me is maybe the greatest inspiration. Like I stand in the middle of some ruins in Greece and, and I just bathe in it and go like, see, people really lived here. They actually did this stuff. Um, and, um, and I always get huge amounts of inspiration from travel. So I'm really looking forward to being allowed to go back to travel. <laughs> yeah, just don't get any fights on the plane, you know. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, exactly. that's, been, that's been going on a lot. Lately, so <laughs> don't don't get into any any squabbles there. Well, that's pretty interesting. You know, um, quite quite the career you had, and it sounds like you got a ways to go still. And we look forward to more books. I, I do like to imagine that I get better. You know, uh, it's it's funny when you have forty three books, people kind of say, "Oh, you wrote four books last year; they can't be that good." And I know why they say that, and maybe that, for all I know, it's true. But in my humble opinion, um, one of the great advantages of writing more is that you get better. Uh, yeah. Because to me, it's a craft like, I don't know, like leather work. And more leather work does make you better. Well, certainly. I, I find that. Uh, I, feel, I feel there's levels. It doesn't always happen per book, but all of a sudden you write a book and you realize that it's quite a bit better than what was – your last best, you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, and so I find that anyway. But um, and isn't the most 
Alan, isn't the most pleasant feeling ever to read your own work and go, hey, I did that. That was good. Well, well, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's one of the better feelings, but I, I try not to read my own work because it's not that good. Um, oh, Alan, I, first of all, I'm going to say, it, as, I know, as I know you're a writer, you must have to read your own stuff the usual, like, six times between copy edit, page proof, et cetera, yeah. and that's mm. all, all I mean, and I think right. You should allow yourself. Wow, I'm giving psychological advice. Uh, the the room to say that was pretty good from time to not too often, but from time to time. Yeah, you know. But I, I when you were talking about all of the people that you're not used to so much attention now, um, that happened to me a while ago, and so after the years of it, you start to you go into this mode where you no longer look at that if you want to keep progressing uh, the focus becomes totally on what i need to do it's no longer about the 200 emails i'm getting every day um because i don't care um and at first mm-hmm. you do mm-hmm. and you're trying to keep up to it and you feel like you have to be efficient and get it all you know get keep up on all this stuff and then after a while you start to realize no it's just a lot of noise and for the most part it takes you off your game it, it takes your attention away from what you really would like to do which is right, and so um, you know it's just sort of one of those things now where I'm, I guess I'm pretty casual about it nowadays. I just sort of let it flow by and and not really pay attention anymore. I, yeah. I am listening very carefully when you say that, Alan, because I have had an analogous experience. I've never had the least bit of fame, but I have been a commanding officer, and I have had to screen even people I like, right to protect yeah. time and, and what we used to call command space. Um, and I, I am aware that, yeah, anyway, thank you yeah. for the good advice. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Our guest today has been the author of the upcoming book, Artifact Space, Miles Cameron. Thank you for being here. It was a huge pleasure being here. Thanks for having me, Alan. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! How dare you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This is Peter of something with media.